Well, today is, today is Veterans Day, a day that uh, began to celebrate the ending of World War I in 1918, and I think it would be appropriate to give a little honor today. If you are in the room and you are a veteran, your parents served in the military, um, either one of those, you're a veteran or your parents uh, served in the military, would you just stand real quick in the room? Four Corners, can you give it up for these families who have sacrificed so much? We're proud to be among you. We really are. Thank you for your sacrifice. We're so honored that you're here. I don't know all of you, but I feel like I owe all of you my gratitude. Well, we're in the uh, message series called Shadows. We're looking at some spiritual dynamics. Uh, spiritual warfare is what we're talking about. And that subject can raise a lot of emotions in a person. It's not a subject that the Bible tells us everything we need to know about. And so whenever we get into the Bible and we start talking about spiritual warfare, there are going to be some areas that are what I call speculative theology. Uh, they're biblically based, but we don't have all the answers that we need or would want to have. But the good news about this topic and so many other topics that the Bible brooches for us is that while we may not know all of the details about every single thing related to spiritual warfare, we don't, we do know enough about spiritual warfare that we can glean what God wants us to glean. And today we're going to talk about one, one category of spiritual warfare that's kind of hard um, sometimes to talk about. So we're calling it PG-13. So if you have a younger child in the room today um, and, and you think that maybe if they couldn't sit in a PG-13 movie, maybe they shouldn't be here, um, then you have about a minute and a half um, to get up before we kind of get into the scriptures that uh, deal with the subject we're going to talk about today. We've been looking at three gods from the Old Testament, lower G gods, false gods from the Old Testament, uh, who were big in the life of Israel, this group of people, this family that God was establishing on earth, that the whole earth would be blessed through this family, and ultimately Jesus would come through this family. But as they went about life, they were in a constant struggle, it seems, between the worship of the one true God and all the opportunities to serve false gods that seemed to always be in front of them. So over the last few weeks, we talked about just the reality of the shadows that are there, these shadow realities that are not the light of God, but they kind of um, project darkness into our life, that these shadows get caught, uh, cast into our life from some of the same forces that were at work in Israel's history. So the shadow of Baal, for instance, this quest for power and control that can leave you exhausted as you work, work, work to make things happen and appease whatever needs to be appeased. And the one true God comes alongside that and says, let me tell you about my relationship that I want with you. I want to offer you peace. I want to give you rest. When you're tired of your struggle and your turmoil and your strife, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and you'll find rest for your soul. It's a very different reality. And last week, we only touched on it briefly because we had such an amazing time together as a church with some missionaries from Cuba. But I started off by telling you that the, 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 the second shadow we were going to talk about, we started last week, was the shadow of mammon. The shadow of mammon, which is really all about getting more and more stuff. And the testimony of our Cuban leadership there reminded us that God can do great things with small obedience, that small things done in obedience to God can result in great things in your life. Faithfulness in small things brings great blessing. And today I want to talk to you about another shadow. 
shadow cast into our culture that was very much alive in ancient Israel, the shadow of Asherah. Asherah is not a name we hear a whole lot today in our modern culture. It's the name of a lower G god, a false god, a female deity worshipped in the land of what the scholars call the ancient Near East. We'd call it Canaan or the land of Israel, the holy land, if you will. And Asherah was all the way present in Israel's history, all the way through the pages of your Old Testament. And the thing that made Asherah so interesting is, is that uh, she was a fertility goddess. And all the things that are associated with fertility are associated with her. And so there's all kinds of erotic and sexualized imagery that go along with Asherah. Now, we don't have little Asherah poles or Asherah figurines like the ones in the pictures up here I'm going to show you. You guys got a couple of those for me, I believe. That's Asherah standing there, and you can see she's a little topless, so close your eyes. Um, Yeah, it's okay. I I was hoping we'd get a little bit of a silly laughter today. There she is, kind of presenting herself there for folks to view. And here's several of these. So these little Asherah figurines were found all over uh, the land of the Bible. They were held up in people's houses as a symbol of fertility so that they could have children, but not just children in their home, but so that their props would be fertile as well, so that they would have the blessings there. And so they would pray often to Baal, who controlled the rain and the thunder god of Baal, and then they would pray to Asherah. They'd worship Asherah. And they liked to worship Asherah on the mountaintops, in the high places. And they liked to worship her in the high places, especially where there were groves of trees, which even extended the reach into heaven even further. And so trees and high places began to be associated with Asherah, both her figurines and sometimes if you couldn't quite fashion it out of stone, you would just take a stick and stand it up in your home or near a place that you thought you wanted the blessing of Asherah and you'd worship and bow down to that stick. It seems pretty innocent in terms of it doesn't create a lot of damage, you know, other than the fact you're worshiping a false god. But it didn't stop there in Israel's history. In the worship of Asherah, they began to break some of the very codes that God had put in place for them. Codes that were given to them to protect their relationship, not only with God, but to protect the health of the relationship they would have with each other. Remember, God created When he wanted to save the world, he created a family, and he gave this family dynamics, principles to operate by. And if the family would operate by those principles, a couple things would happen. That family would be blessed. Like, they would be blessed so much that the rest of the world would stand up and take notice of how God, the one true God, was blessing these people. And in that observation of their blessedness, then the rest of the world could be blessed as well as they came to know the character and the heart of the one true God. Not the God who simply wants more activity from you. Not the God that wants to run you in the ground. But the God who really wanted a relationship, an intimate and close relationship. So we talk about Asherah, and from a historical perspective, it's kind of hard to understand the preoccupation and the belief in this kind of pre-industrial, pre-enlightenment world. But you don't have to go very far, even though it's called something else, to see our culture's preoccupation with the very same type of erotic and sexualized stuff that is offered to modern human beings here in North Cincinnati and around the globe. 
And I don't think it's a stretch to, to say that the shadow of Asherah is cast throughout all of human history. Called by different names. The Greeks permutated the word a little bit and called her Ishtar or Isis, if you will. Same basic deity. She shows up in all kinds of ancient history. The, the, the Romans had their version of it. And the attraction, the appeal was is that somehow sex would be the vehicle of the good life. I mean, sex is pleasurable, right? I mean, if it's done right, if it's done wrong, maybe it's not. But if it's done right, sex is pleasurable. And sex can make you forget an awful lot of pain in your life. I mean, we know now what they didn't know back then. We know the endorphins that rush through the head as the physical sensors in your body pick up stimulus and it releases chemicals in your, in your brain that are very much like the high that a dope addict would get from taking pills or getting shot up. I mean, it, it literally can be addictive and pleasurable. And when you're in the middle of sexual activity, you're not thinking about the pain of life. You're not thinking about the challenges in front of you. You're not thinking about whether or not you can balance your checkbook or how somebody's treating you uh, in the larger scale of the relationship. You're not thinking about the challenges in our culture or even frustration that you might have at the government or your employer or your school. No, you're just in the pleasure zone. That, that's the challenge of Asherah. She promises pleasure and the good life. And it's very appealing. In fact, this shadow is so large that there isn't a single person in this room who hasn't been affected by it. In the Old Testament, the children of Israel had to decide, worship the one true God or worship Asherah. They tried to do both, it seems like, as you read the Old Testament. You know, they worship the one true God because he seemed pretty powerful and he could get you some good stuff, but nobody could deny the power and the appeal of Asherah and the pleasure that came and the hope of fertility and all of its implications could bring. And so just to be safe, they kind of do both for a while. And God would raise up a leader, and that leader would kind of forcefully declare God's hope for those families that God was trying to bless. And he would remind them that God's given us principles by which we're supposed to live. And if we live by those principles, then the true blessing, the thing that you really want in life, that'll come to you. And all these other counterfeit gods ultimately are going to leave you empty and broken. Ultimately, they're powerless to ultimately fulfill what you deep down really want. The only real path, these prophets would say, is to follow the one true God and the, and the way of life he's designed for his people, this family he's trying to bless. You see this, for instance, in the prophet Elijah who stands against Jezebel and the prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of Baal. And right beside the 450 prophets of Baal, the Bible tells us in 1 Kings, there are 400 prophets of Asherah. There's 850 prophets against Elijah on the mountain. We talked about his experience a couple weeks ago. You got Jeremiah who's preaching and he's talking and Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because his heart's just so full of hope for what God has. But when he looks at the world around him, the gap between what God wants and where people really are just breaks him. And he writes in, in Jeremiah chapter 7, he writes about the challenges 
that exist in Israel because a lot of the women are making special cakes for the goddess of heaven, is one of the names Asherah is called. And they're setting them out. They're leaving them there as an offering to her. And just mechanically, that means that whatever is going to feed that part of their life isn't going to feed their family. There's some challenge. But also just the split devotion. And so with Elijah and with Jeremiah, there's a return back to the ways of God. And the people of God seem to want to get behind again this idea that God loves them. God wants a relationship with them. He's building a family. And in that family, the world will be blessed. And in order to be fully blessed, there's a set of understandings, principles, guidelines by which this family would operate. And if they would, it would protect the blessing. And if they don't, they're going to step out of the blessing. That's ancient Israel, a little bit of our modern times. But again, everybody in this room knows the allure of the shadow of Asherah. In fact, there's no way to talk about this today without stepping on some very tender emotions present in our room. And, and I want to I acknowledge for just a moment that as we're talking today, you might expect a pastor to just like harp on the, the rules side of what we're supposed to do as followers of Jesus, but that's not what I'm doing today. I, I want to talk about what it is to stand up against in a modern society, as a modern man, as a modern woman, as a person who lives in the United States here in North Cincinnati, maybe listening online, but you, you have the, the mind, the education, the availability of resources to you, but you still find yourself somewhat in the darkness cast by the shadow of Asherah and all of the stuff that goes along with pleasure-seeking. It's what gets people addicted to chemicals and substances. In our church, the number one, to the best of my subjective understanding, the number one most abused drug in our congregation is alcohol. That's what makes some people rush home and, and the way that they become themselves is they down a glass or two or four of wine every night. And that pleasure that comes from that substance washes away and makes them forget the other stuff. Now, for some people, the, the truth is that they've got this thing with the internet that they do, that when they do this thing they do with the internet, it's very similar to drinking several glasses of wine or taking a pill. They're focused. It's basically some type of self-therapy that just helps them relax, maybe go to sleep, disengage from the world around them. That, and that's active stuff that happens here. Some people in our church, in all sincerity, like, they're involved in a relationship that has a covenant around it, a marriage, a piece of paper, or at least a commitment, but they also have another thing on the side over here because what's happening in that place over there isn't as fully satisfying and as fully pleasurable as they'd like it to be, so they found something else over here as well, and it meets some kind of need that they've identified in themselves. All that's happening in our congregation. It happens all over the world. It's just... Pleasure is pleasurable, and it's addictive, and it's, it's enticing. I always thought about the ancient church 
in, uh, in the land of Paul in the New Testament time, several hundred years after the time that Asherah first shows up on the scene. She's still around, and Paul, in fact, has to write to the church at Corinth. Now, by the time Corinth comes around, the church in Corinth, the Greeks have been working in the world, and it's kind of a pre-enlightenment time. I mean, they still believe in all kinds of forces and stuff that we largely reject, but, I mean, science is in full swing. They understand the basic mechanics of life. I mean, so much of of what they discovered, we're still discovering how to put it to use today. I mean, it's a really sweet time to be alive in a lot of ways. But in the First Corinthian church, the letter of First Corinthians, we get a picture of a church that is devoted to the Lord. I mean, they're on fire, man. And God's showing up doing great stuff in the midst. But they got some stuff going on as well. There's these shadows from... Their former life, if you take it all the way, shadows from the Old Testament keep showing up in the life of the church at Corinth and these Christians' lives. So Paul has to spend a lot of time talking about sexual stuff and the damage it brings to people. And he doesn't do it like so often it gets talked about, like, you know, don't do it. And, uh, you know, it's all bad. And God won't like you and... Kittens are going to die if you do. I mean, none of that stuff. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't do any of that stuff. He comes at it from the heart of like a, a well, I would say a pastor, but sometimes that's not as clear. He comes at it from the heart of the, like the best dad you can think of. And he's just, I want something better for you because I can see something you can't see. You're in a shadow. And I want something better for you than the path you're on currently is going to bring you to. And I want you to remember that God started building this family in the Old Testament. And he said to them, look, I want to bless you and I want to bless the whole world through you. So you got to like, we got to have this relationship that's special. We can't let anything get between us. And not only between me and you, I want to build a family that, that treats each other incredibly well. I want to do something special in the family itself. I want to elevate the status of humanity in this world. And I want the family to be a place of safety and security where who you are in your core being gets called out. It doesn't get overshadowed by circumstance and by brokenness. And so Paul is coming at it with that heart for these people in Corinth. And he reminds them, he doesn't call it Asherah. They're in a different era. But he reminds them of the challenge that comes when God's people seem to be captivated by pleasure-seeking and all the ways it manifests. I mean, sex is the easy way to talk about it. It's very explicit in the text, but it shows up in other ways. I've already referenced chemicals that can be taken. It can show up in food. It can show up in the adrenaline rush. It's a lot of ways it shows up. But the one clear message is, is that while a lot of things may in and of, them, of themselves not be evil... Taken to an extreme, the very freedoms you have sometimes can literally put chains around you. It's the kind of language, they use different language, but it's a similar language to people who would tell me in years later after they'd quit smoking, they remember the first time they smoked and how enjoyable it was and how rebellious it was and how powerful it felt. And then after 25, 30 years, they wish they'd had never experienced that freedom that started as freedom, but ultimately put chains around them, right? I'm not beating anybody up. That's just what happens. I've talked to husbands who are in 20-year, 25-year, 10-year marriages, 
and they've got this secret side of connecting with the internet and other material that they've kept largely hidden. And they're devastated by it. It started off so natural and curious and enjoyable and then it became a habit. And now the very thing that it seemed to promise, fulfillment and joy and connection and release now seems like bondage and pain and the intimacy that they really, really desire is elusive. Sometimes the wife knows about it. Sometimes she doesn't. And honestly, friends, in the last five years around here, there's been a dramatic shift reflecting the culture. It used to be almost exclusively a guy thing, but not anymore. For whatever reason, our culture has told women that the way you'll be powerful is you'll have all the freedoms that men have. And I get it. That sounds awesome. But in a culture that makes that kind of sexual engagement available and natural for women, should also pick up the responsibility to explain to women the bondage that comes with it. And we just don't do a good job at that as a culture. So Paul doesn't come and beat people up. He comes with a broken heart and he's like, I want something better for you. I don't want this shadow to be so large in your life. I mean, even if we can't wipe away all of our experiences, and none of us can, we all have them. We can't wipe away all of our experiences. Maybe we don't have to live in the shackles of that shadow reality. And maybe there's a way to be free. And there is. There really is. In fact, what we're going to do is we're going to park ourselves in the scriptural passages of First uh, Corinthians and in Proverbs. And what I have for you on your message notes is some of them, but I don't have all the room in the world to put everything on there. I actually want to start in First Corinthians, but you don't have that in your message notes. So if you want to write this down, you'll be able to go back later and take a look. So First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 20 is how we started the message series. I'm going to just pull us back there for a second. So we begin to unpack how to break free from the shadow of Asherah. Here's what Paul writes to that Corinthian church with the heart of a loving father. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So there's something about the experience that you have with God that makes the things of God not foolish anymore, but powerful. So it's just important that I say, Today, I'm not trying to talk to the world about getting on board with God's agenda. Now, I just think that's putting the cart before the horse. I want to talk today to believers about getting on board with God's agenda, to people who call the name of Christ. Now, if you're an unbeliever, maybe there's some stuff in here that can help you. I hope so. But if you're a Christian, the stuff we're talking about today, this is the kind of stuff that God wants you to hear his heart on because he wants you free of the shackles that came, even if you didn't realize you were putting shackles on as you were operating in some kind of promised freedom. So, there's foolishness of the cross to the world, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God, for it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? So there's a way of looking at this stuff that's worldly, and there's a way of looking at this stuff that's godly. Now, if you weren't here, I'll, let me give you a two-minute 
rehash, but we talked about three powerful forces that set themselves up against God. There's your own flesh, and man, does Asherah speak to the flesh or what? You know, I just, I want more of that. If once is good, a hundred is better. You know, if one piece is, is, is awesome, give me four pieces. If one drink is good, I'd like three, please. That's the flesh, the cravings of the flesh. And then the other, the other big force that sets itself up in our destruction is the system of this world. Sometimes I call it the culture we live in. It's the world's way of doing things that are not, is not God's way. Jesus talked a lot about the world, and one of the ways he talked about it to draw the distinction is he would say when he was on the, the mountain giving the sermon, he would say, you've heard it said, but I say to you. So you've heard it say an eye for an eye, but I say to you, forgive. You've heard it say if you have sex with somebody else, it's adultery. But I say if you have lust in your heart, there's something else going on you need to deal with. You, you've heard it said, so the world stands itself. So we have the flesh, we have the world. And then the Bible makes it very clear. We have a very personal enemy whose whole goal is to bring pain, destruction, and death to you. And all three of these things conspire. Asherah is really, really powerful at leveraging the flesh. The flesh. And saying, man, get all you want. Life is short. The slogan of Asherah, not in the Old Testament, but became this, especially in the Greeks, was eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow you're going to die. I mean, you're just a body anyway. And if you're just a body, what does it matter? All your pleasures are just animalistic. You need to eat, so eat. And if you can't, eat a lot. In fact, a larger body in the ancient world was a sign of wealth and prominence. That's why all the women who are in the statues, you know, if you go through the museums, you see these ancient, they're all a little extra large than what, you know, they are in American modern photography. They were wealthy. They had a lot. They were voluptuous because they could feed the natural appetites. And you can see how that can go wrong real, real quick in a lot of ways. But it's animalistic. You need to eat, so eat a lot. You have urges, animalistic urges to connect, to procreate, to, you know, have fun. So just do it. In fact, there's nothing more to it than natural urges, animalistic urges. Back a few years ago when I was teaching high school, a song came out, and uh, the refrain went something like this, you and me, baby, we ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. Yeah, that's exactly what they were talking about. Animalistic urges. Yeah, it was just a new way of saying the same old thing. But the God of the Bible comes along and says there's something else going on in sex beyond just animalistic urges. You know, you know what this is like. Some of you are hunters, and you know, we're right on the border of where it's still okay to hunt and it's not okay to hunt. And if the person next to you thinks that you're a hunter, they probably don't think you're going to heaven. It, it, that, that, we're like right in the middle of all that. And we're, in, we're in Ohio. We choose elections, right? We, we determine things. So we've got both sides represented here. But let me just go for a metaphor for a second. Some of you were hunters, and, and you know, when you come across an 8-point, 10-point, or 12-point buck, you know what that means? That means that's one of the wisest and most cunning and crafty animals in the woods. 
it's lived long enough to have that kind of maturity happen in his life. It's going to be hard to kill that thing. That's why they're prized. You know, you get up to double digits in points. I mean, it, they're, it, they're hard to get. You know why? Because they're, they're crafty. Until rutting season. Right? And at rutting season, man, they're, they're crazy. They're crazy. And so we, you know, we've learned in our modern age when to allow people to take guns and shoot and bows and arrows and all that stuff. There is a certain animalistic instinct to the sex act and to our desires, but the Bible makes it clear we're going to discover there's so much more than that. And in fact, the truth of what the Bible says is one of your first weapons to dispel the shadows, just understanding it. I'm talking about understanding it even before you agree with it, just a simple understanding. What does the Bible actually encourage me to do? It's one of the primary weapons you have in combating the shadow of Asherah. Not only is it animalistic in our modern age, it's recreational. If I'm bored, look at the internet. Number one thing I hear from men who struggle. You know when they're susceptible? When they're bored. They're also susceptible when they're angry. They're susceptible when they're hurt and disappointed. They're not allowed to talk about it, so they go to their natural therapy. And there's Asher going, come on, it's okay, just do it. You'll be fine, nobody will know anyway. It doesn't hurt anybody. It's a victimless crime. And it plays on this natural recreational instinct in, 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 a, in a world where a lot of us don't have a lot of natural uh, adrenaline producers. We don't have a lot of natural adventure. I mean, Astra offers an incredible amount of adventure for the aging guy who's finally, you know, out of the high school who's cool and not cool and Maybe he was cool, maybe he wasn't cool, but now in his middle age, he has some means, he has some availability, he has some power, and, and nothing to make a guy feel more powerful than what Asher offers, especially if he can have it with multiple people. It feels incredibly powerful. It's alluring, not just because it's physically pleasurable, but it's emotionally satisfying on some real level. But the God of the Bible shows up and says something very different. The other thing the world tells us is that these intimate acts are really isolated events in your life. You have this part of your life, which is your intellectual self. You have this part of your life, which is your professional self. And maybe you have the part of your life that is your dad self. I'm just talking to men right now. But then you have this part of your life that's your sexual self. And they're isolated. They're large compartments with almost you know, brick walls between them. Asher would love for you to believe that. When the God of the Bible says, oh, actually, these components of your life, they intertwine, and you can't actually separate them. I mean, you might be successful for a few minutes of not thinking about them, even a few years, but eventually it's going to come back. I'm not sure that when I was younger, I really understood this, but now as a pastor, I'll be 50 soon. The number of people I've sat with, and they've said to me, man, if I'd have known then what I know now, I'd have never done then what I'm regretting now. That's the allure of Asherah. Doesn't take much because your own body will betray you. <laughs> the system of the world isn't going to encourage you in this direction. I mean, men, come on, your buddies, I mean, they'll high five you for this stuff. I mean, not only will you have your win and your conquest, but you get the high five from your friends. 
And then there's your enemy. And the last thing he wants for you is anything good. So Paul writes to this church and he's like, I got to help you understand some stuff. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So understanding what God said is important. And here I'm going to direct you now to the top of your message notes if you want to follow along. The reason why this stuff is so important is because the way we are treated and behave sexually has a large impact on our sense of personal value, how you feel about yourself. And Asherah shadows touch the deepest parts of who we are. I mean, the elephant in the room in our modern culture is being portrayed all over in the last election, all over the media, is that there's a huge part of the Asherah appeal that doesn't happen because anybody chose it to happen. It gets forced upon them. Somebody in the pursuit living in the shadow of Asherah in the pursuit of their own pleasure, forces themselves in some way on another person. Now, if you're just an animal, it doesn't matter because the pursuit of your pleasure is all you're beholden to. And in truth, is in our room, there's a lot of people even talking about this. The challenge is not so much that you made choices to do stuff, but choices were made against you. And what happens to us sexually, both how we behave and what happens to us not by our choice, can have a deep, it does have a deep and profound impact on how we see ourselves and how we value ourselves. So God, who loves us, rises up and he offers us a better way. And his voice in the Old and New Testament is pretty consistent. He wants us to experience pleasure within healthy boundaries Because when you experience pleasure within healthy boundaries, you can continue to experience that pleasure and other pleasures. But when certain pleasures operate outside the bounds, they stop actually being pleasurable and they can actually hinder the pleasure of other things. The problem with Asherah is not so much that the promises are false, but they are over-promised and they under-deliver. If you were fully satisfied sexually, Asherah promises the married man then your marriage would be fine. Life would feel good. You'd feel strong and virile. You'd be able to face your day. Asher promises the the college-aged person, you know, if you had intimacy physically, then you would feel close at heart. The loneliness that is pervasive would disappear. Overpromise, underdeliver. So in Proverbs, in your Bible... The voice of wisdom speaks again as a father to his son. And he talks in very direct ways. This is from the New Living Testament. It's an English translation. It's a good one. I like the wording because the the language here, I think, is in two points, is a little bit more precise. Whenever the Bible talks about the womanly parts of the body, not whenever, but often it refers to it as a well. And whenever it talks about the manly parts of the body, it often refers to it as a fountain. If you don't understand that, call your mom and dad when you get home, and uh, they'll help you see the connection there. That's beyond the scope of PG-13. Somebody asked me, are we going to go rated R? Had we gone further on this point, the answer would be yes, but we're not right now, so we're good, all right? So here's what the Bible says. Drink from your own well. Share your love only with your wife. Talking to a husband. All right, you have a well. Go there. Why spill the water of your springs or your fountains in the streets having sex with just anyone? You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. 
Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving deer, graceful doe. Let her breasts satisfy you always. May you always be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an immoral woman or fondle the breasts of a promiscuous woman? For the Lord sees clearly what a man does, examining every path he takes. An evil man is held captive by his own sin, his own desire. There, it starts out as freedom, but they're held captive. They are ropes that catch and hold him. He will die for lack of self-control. He will be lost because of his great foolishness. So this voice of wisdom says, let me, let me tell you why God was so clear about this stuff, is, is he doesn't want what starts off with the promise of freedom to ultimately enslave you. Let me just make a few kind of pastoral statements for a moment. God designed us so that our relationships are key to our happiness. When you get involved sexually on the front end of a relationship, it can actually mask the unhealthy dynamics in that relationship. I mean, honestly, when you're having sex in the moments before, in the moments during, and the moments after, you're typically not thinking about the fact that there isn't a lot of trust between us. We don't communicate well. I don't feel fully valued. You don't really listen to my voice. You don't seem to really... Because in those moments, all that's on the back burner. But God has designed us primarily for the relationship. And having a healthy relationship where our value and our worth gets elevated, not minimized. So when we get involved sexually on the front end of a relationship, it can mask unhealthy relationships and ultimately can undermine even sexual satisfaction later. So they rush to relationship, it all seems good, but eventually those things that aren't dealt with because they're covered over by the pleasure now begin to manifest themselves. You see this in believers, you see this in unbelievers. And it's the relationship that people don't understand the way God designed it. It's the relationship that's supposed to drive the sex and not the other way around. And when the relationship in a marriage drives the sex, then the sex is a great gift that can be enjoyed frequently and robustly, and the Bible's very clear about that. That's a message for another day. But when sex drives the relationship, I'm just telling you, take it from a man who's near old enough to just do it by the sheer force of his age and, 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 and observation to say these things. When the sex drives the relationship, I've never known it to end well. Never. I've never known it to end well. But when the relationship drives the sex, I've known people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s who still had intimate connection in their marriage relationship. And it isn't a thing of bitter disputes and disappointment. Our world tells us that if all there is to life is life and your biology, then just go with biology and you'll have a, you'll have a lot of pleasurable experiences. But the truth is, is if that's what you do, what you'll actually do is leave a string of hurt people behind you. And eventually you'll be one of those hurt people. I've never had anybody ever say to me, when they were 35, 40, 45 years old working through their marriage issues. You know, if I'd have just had more sexual conquests in college, I bet we wouldn't be having this problem now. I've never had anybody say that to me. In fact, just the opposite. I wonder what's on her mind because of what she used to do with that other person. And because Asher had its full expression over here, it causes now pain years later. 
And there's your heavenly father going, look, what, what I want for you, what I want for you is I want this family that I'm developing to be a blessing to you in the world. And I'm going to do everything I can to help you understand how family works best, how relationship goes best. And relationship goes best when intimacy is preserved for a covenant relationship. That's how it goes best. So I don't want you to go outside the bounds. But you don't have to look at your own life. The culture that a value places on monogamy one man, one woman, determines, I think, if you look at history, the welfare of women and children over time. Women and children do not fare well in societies that embrace polygamy or promiscuity. In the majority of cases, sexual freedom actually enslaves women. Primarily, you'll see it early show up in financial enslavement. They do not have financial freedom. And sexual freedom ultimately can undermine the financial and the emotional security of children. So our Heavenly Father shows up and he's like, I'm not trying to be a killjoy. I love you. I want you to have this gift I gave you. Remember, I created it. It wasn't like God came down in the Garden of Eden one day and saw Adam and Eve behind the bushes going, what are y'all doing? Whoa, whoa, you can do that? I mean, he wasn't caught. It was his design. It's his gift. And he wants it to operate within his bounds because he knows the powerful potential of the shadow of Asherah to take, here's what they all do, to take something God meant for so much good and twist it and pervert it and bring so much pain into your life. So there's a lot more we could say. The bottom line is, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, that we're to honor God with our bodies and This has huge implications, not just sexual. It has all kinds of implications. But the context Paul specifically was talking about was honoring God sexually. And for children of God, this is a big deal. But the culture, half your friends and your own body isn't going to encourage you. And I'm going to tell you, men and women, you're incredibly, incredibly good at deceiving yourselves. You know, I know because I am too. All of us have an incredible ability for self-deception. And we can justify almost anything. But your heavenly father knows something better than you do. Remember, your wisdom fails in comparison to his wisdom. And when it comes to breaking the shadow of Asher, understanding what he says is a goal. But the other thing is, valuing what he says above what you say is another key ingredient to breaking that stronghold in your life. You have to actually believe that God knows best, his wisdom is best. You have to actually believe it. The problem is is that we say we do, but we don't, or we have excuses, or we have exceptions. Now, I only have a couple minutes left, and that's probably all that we need. I think it's clear the point today, but my point today wasn't to try to get people to behave. Uh, My point today was to talk to those of us that maybe haven't about why it's so painful. What can you do about it? I want to make it perfectly clear to you that God sent his son Jesus to die for people who not were just sexually pure. In fact, that wasn't why Jesus came at all. (laughs) Jesus came for those people whose lives have been touched by the shadow of Asherah. And he offers forgiveness and healing and restoration. Where there has been pain, he can bring peace. Where there's been destruction, he can rebuild. I mean, the, the scriptures are replete with this kind of language in the Bible. For instance, in Jeremiah chapter 31, there at the bottom of your notes, I don't have it written out for you, but 
You can um, discover it in your own Bible. Here's what the Bible says. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. I will build you up again. And you, virgin Israel, I will, uh, will be rebuilt. Again, you'll take up your timbrels and you'll go out and dance with the joyful. In other words, you'll return to youth. You'll be playing in the streets because God can restore. There's often this language of, of marriage between God and the people of Israel. And they had gone after other gods and basically committed adultery spiritually, if you will. And God says, let me tell, let me tell you what I do. I'm in the business of restoring. And so once again, you'll be like a young girl. You'll be able to go out and play in the streets. And that pain of your experience won't define who you are. Christ redeems. In Psalm 103, verse 1 and 4, Praise the Lord who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. And Christ restores. 1 Peter 5.10 And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. This is the hope that we have for those of us who the shadow of Asher has touched our lives. That God isn't done. And that his heart is the same as it was all along. Both on the front end when he gave us the principles... And now, when his heart is on display in helping redeem, heal, and restore us as we broke them. Some of the best marriages I know, some of the best marriages I know are the function of two men and women who were incredibly broken. One or both did incredibly hurtful things. But then they both decided that from this point on, Jesus would be first in their marriage. And they built something beautiful where their path was destined towards probably ending the relationship because they committed to Christ, God did something beautiful. Some of the best Christian men I know have struggled in their mind and in their thought process with purity issues and with lust, but they have seen God reign victorious in their life and their humility before God, their honesty typically before other men and the help they received. They were able to stand up as one who'd been washed and clean made whole by Christ. We don't give scarlet letter A's anymore in the church. It's a stupid thing to have ever done. We don't do that. But the truth is, is if we could kind of peel back the veneer, a lot of us feel an awful lot of shame in this area. And I just want to make something perfectly clear for you. Your heavenly father does not peddle in shame. He offers forgiveness Your Heavenly Father does not want you to wallow in hurt and be stuck because of choices you've made. He wants to rebuild and restore. And an active walk with Him is the way you do that. It begins with a simple word that has so much behind it. It's the word repent. And it doesn't mean feel sorry, although you might. It literally is a very simple term. I'm going this way, and I met to know, oh, I turn my face to the other direction. I turn my face. So if you're going down the wrong road, if you're walking in the shadow of Asherah, the Bible encourages his people, the men and women of God, to turn and go in a different direction. We can help you. For those of you that want it, I'll send you a prayer that you can listen to online and kind of pray along with. It's been helpful for a lot of people. It's going to be one of the steps I offer you. I'm going to give you a chance in just a moment to pray 
It could be that in your small group, it'd be appropriate to share some of what's going on. You can make an appointment with the pastor here. You can open up God's word. I can send you some scriptures. And you can begin to turn away from the shadow and begin to walk in the light that is God and discover some of the blessing that comes from walking in the purity that God called you to. His heart for you is not to rob you of joy, but to give you the kind of joy that Asher can't steal. Why don't you do this? Why don't you grab out your connect card? And let's actually take a couple steps together as a congregation. So getting that out, let me just say specifically to those people who've had sexual things happen to you and you didn't choose them and somebody took advantage of you sincerely, I am so sorry. The most painful things I hear as a pastor is in that category. I want you to know that even there where it wasn't your choice, the pain can be almost overwhelming at times, but God is God and he's bigger than that stuff. And he can rewrite your story so that those events that you didn't even choose would have never chosen, they don't define who you are. So, next step A for us today, as always, is today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. And it could be that you don't have a relationship with that Father whose heart for you is so good that he would speak to you with candor and clarity about such an important topic of life. And that he'd be there to catch you when you fall. If you don't, the Bible says you can have a relationship with him based not on your own work, but because of what Jesus has done. And I'd ask you to take the pen and check next step A. Today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. Put the, offer, or put the card in the offering bucket when it comes by, and we'll communicate with you about what it means to be a child of God. Or next step B, today I'm choosing to be baptized. We have a baptism coming up. I believe it's the second Sunday of December or the first. I don't remember right now, but it's coming up real soon. Um, so if you'd like to be baptized, you begin that conversation by checking this box and, again, putting the card in our offering bucket. Or next step C, it says, pray this prayer every morning. It says, thank you, Father, that through Christ I am being made new. Today, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit in me. This is a part of a prayer that King David from your Old Testament prayed when he succumbed to his pleasures and he walked in disobedience with God and brought all kinds of pain into his life. And one day he turned, he repented, and he made things right with God. And so if this has been your path, this is some good words. God, create in me a clean heart. Thank you that I'm being made new in Christ. Next step, D says, uh, send me the link for the prayer for sexual healing Pastor Ben mentioned in the message. So if you do that, I'll just send this to you. You can watch it and listen to it. And it's about 17 minutes long and um, something that you can kind of do in your private devotional time. And a lot of people have found it to be incredibly healing and helpful. Next step, E, it says, hey, I'd like to talk to Pastor Ben about an earlier leading gift for my Christmas offering 2018. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk a lot about this. But if you'd like to get on the front end of how we're helping Cuba and India... And if you'd like to make an early leading gift that hopefully would inspire our congregation, um, just check the box, and I'll reach out. We'll have coffee. I'll spend a lot of money on you. We'll go to Waffle House, have $2 coffee, and um, talk about what God's going to do through our Christmas offering this year. We already have a few gifts coming in. It's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Um, looks like 10 pastors are on their way to being sponsored by our congregation in Cuba, which just blows me away blows me away. So some of you have an email and you need to kind of click through because you asked for that email. And um, I don't know if you heard first service, but last week during first service, <laughs> a member of our congregation came up and said, hey, I heard you saying you wanted to sponsor five pastors for Cuba for this year. That would be the goal. And they said, we are going to sponsor all five. So then go to the rest of the church and get more. So that's what we're doing. So five's already done. 
Yeah, I heard a little clap out there. That's all right. It's all good. Yeah, if you wanted to thank God for that, that's a big deal. It's a big deal. So if you want to talk about what God's going to do with our Christmas offering, uh, I'd love to do that with you. And uh, if not, start thinking about what you want to give. Would you take that piece of paper, lay it aside right now, and if you call this church home, prepare to give in an act of worship to support the ministry here. Unfortunately, I can't tell you how much I wish I had grown up in a church like ours that talks about grace as Pastor Josh, our kids pastor, said earlier in the service where real people have real problems and are not afraid to admit it because we know we serve a big and awesome God. That's not the church I grew up in. The church I grew up in, you had to have a little bit of shame. In fact, you only knew you went to church when you left feeling a little guilty. That's how you knew you were at church. But that's not true here. And the only way it happens that we can create a place where people can be transparent and real and talk about real issues of life like we did today is because you mechanically make it happen through your giving. That's not all that's required. I mean, the Holy Spirit has to show up. God has to do his work. The word of God is powerful. But one of the key ingredients to making the church happen is people are faithful to give back to God a little bit of what he's blessed them with. And you do that. And I'm grateful. If you're looking for a church home, this is a pretty good one. We're not perfect. We're a pretty good church. And we'll love you right where you are. And we'll love your family fiercely. We'll do our best to serve you and preach the word of God in a way that is understandable and so that the heart of God comes through on display. Let's pray about our next steps and our offering right now. Father, thank you that you're the God who loves us enough to tell us the truth about life. You're the God who loves us enough to give us warnings, but you're also the God who loves us enough to come alongside us when we haven't paid attention to your warnings. And you offer grace and healing and restoration. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room, God, who have been hurt by the topic we've been discussing. There's some pain in their life. There's some residual resentment in their life. There's some disappointment in their life. It's shown up in the intimacy in their marriage. It's shown up in communication challenges. But God, it's also shown up in the way they see themselves. And I pray, Father, that you would make yourself known to them in a special way today that the truth of who you are and the value you see each of us in would speak louder than any lie of the enemy. You would quiet the mouth of the devourer for our sakes today. Father, I want to thank you for the men and women who are declaring right now, Jesus, wash away my sins. Cover me by your shed blood. I have no way of saving myself, so I trust the work you've done on the cross and in your resurrection. I trust in that alone to save me. And Father, would you take our next steps and would you take our offerings and make them go far and wide? We anticipate, God, incredible generosity through this Christmas offering that's coming and the great work you're going to do here and around the world. We pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen.